Leftovers Season 2, Episode 5. No room at the inn is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler, and I'm joined by a man. It's his turn on the top of the taco truck, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, save me, brother. That, get me out of here. That is, a, that is as metaphoric as you can get, my friend. It's, it's your turn. I need a stint up there. I tell you, I've done some things. I've, Repent. I've, I've done some wrongs. I've done some wrongs. I know. I mean, it's been a while since we talked about what we did in upstate New York, but I been mean, if ever, there, if ever there was... A, wait, were you just, did you derail me by singing Stained? Uh, no, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, my God. A little bit of Stained. Yeah. Uh, it's this, been a while. It has been a while. This would normally be the point where I would drop some Stained music into the podcast, Please don't. but I, I just don't have it in me. I don't no. have it in me. Okay, I do. I do. I have it in me. Okay, and it's over. Oh, no. Um, how you doing, Antonio? How are things? Oh, man. This episode wrecked me, man. This episode wrecked me, Josh. How about you? It wrecked me, baby. Oh, no. Here we go again. This is an all-musical podcast. This is such a weird episode no. to be so musical about. No, I didn't drop in any time that he just now. That's good. That. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I, it's uh, okay. tough. You got an American guy. You got an American girl. Like, it's everything that's the dream love story. But, man, poor Matt. Poor, poor Mary. Poor Matt. Poor Matt. More poor Mary, probably, than poor Matt, I would uh, say. Oh, this is just so rough. I don't even know where to begin. And I don't The even darkness. Know. The darkness has returned. I mean, any sort of levity that this season of The Leftovers has had, I feel like, was just like, whoosh. Right out the window. This is like vintage, super depressing leftovers. Yeah, and I don't even... It's just uh, there is a point to it, of course, and it's a great story, but it is certainly not much uh, in the in the way of uplift. Like, there really isn't much there that you can hang your hat on, uh, unless you want to hang it on something that's hanging from the stocks. I mean, it's really... <laughs> oh, gross. Yeah, it's really brutal, man. It's just... Uh, this is just... A, there. I mean, there's... What do we have? Dead dads in this episode. We have floods. We have wheelchairs we have uh, immaculate conceptions perhaps or uh, miracle conceptions i mean i don't know what else to say or more sinisterly you know not so great con- conception yeah and i we we have we have to talk about that but i mean i almost don't want to think about the uh, the op- the option for Ma- when mary doesn't wake up like i don't i really that's a, a really tough way to look at matt that i don't want to look at him because i think he's a really troubled yet really good deep deep down a good guy uh and Sounds like he's had issues since he was born, and we, we can go back and talk about what we know about Matt from season one, but this is a guy who really, when we first meet him, he's like a troll. He's just basically saying bad things about everyone who was taken uh, on uh, on the departure day and putting out flyers about how they weren't great people and all the bad things they've done, and he drops the bomb on Nora Durst that her husband was cheating on her. Uh, right. th- these are the sorts of things that we know about Matt from season one, so Good guy, not good guy. I feel like that is in play, even though in my gut, I do want him to be truly good. He, he's done some, some questionably good things in his life for certain. Right. And I mean, you mentioned this to me before we came on the air, before we started recording. And it feels so familiar. It feels like something that we had talked about in our early days of Leftovers podcasting. But you compared Matt to John Locke from Lost for me. Can you expound upon that? Oh, I mean, yeah, we could expound upon that for hours. But the, the long and the short of it is he is a, dogged man of faith. He truly believes that he, among others, has been selected with some kind of special miracles that are happening in his life and that despite what damage they may cause him and others, he needs to stay on this path. And he does have moments of doubt. He does have these moments where he's put in in position where he can question what happens or interpret it multiple ways. And sure, he's looking for evidence to prove the things that he has uh, faith over, but on the sh- uh, on balance, he really is a guy who is 
operating with this dogged belief that he is special and that he is chosen and that he has a role to play in terms of being that kind of leader. Uh, and it's, it's very much like John Locke. And John Locke, of course, in the island and lost is something that John of all characters had a questionably believable thing that he put a lot of faith into in terms of his being healed on the island. I think a lot of people wouldn't have believed that that was possible. And yet here he ends up in this place and something magical happens. Uh, and that's really what we're looking at with Matt and Mary. Matt is saying something great did happen here, and nobody else is really giving it a lot of credence. So, I mean, nobody. Strangers, people who know him, anybody. Like, really the only person who's willing to believe him is his sister. So I think there's a lot going on with the Locke and, and, and Matt comparison. Um, also kind of interesting that uh, instead of being the man in the wheelchair, he's the man pushing the wheelchair. Yeah. You know, there's still there, there's the wheelchair metaphor there, too. Absolutely. And, and there's the... The kind of person who feels that he can kind of like lead a thing and needs a thing and is willing to go through horrible things to experience it, is willing to kind of follow his own faith uh, no matter where it will lead, is willing to make the same mistakes over and over again, gets taken advantage of by operators and people who see him as a good person who can be taken advantage of. There's a, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're talking about episode five of the leftover season two here today on post show recaps. You guys should be subscribed to this podcast feed. That is postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. So you make sure you don't miss an episode. Uh, Antonio, where do you want to start with this? I mean, we keep tracking the leftovers season two. We keep saying that this is a show that's possibly getting better and better and better, at least being really consistent and high quality so far this season. We've talked about how this was a deeply depressing episode. I called it vintage left in that regard but do you think that it's still high quality was this a high quality episode for you oh absolutely unquestionably yeah, I, I mean it, the, the the season two shifting kind of to the points of view where the first episode you had the murphy's point of view the second episode the garvey's the third episode you had uh tommy and kind of what was going on there and the fourth episode we got a little back uh with nora uh and kevin uh with the the durst family but we that was a little bit of a mix but this one is almost pure Matt point of view. I think the shifting is great. And I mean, we're going to get an Erica point of view. It looks like we're going to get maybe cross fingers, a John point of view episode uh, where we find out really what is making John tick because that still continues to be one of the most fascinating mysteries in this season, full of mysteries. And Matt brings it up again in this episode. So I'm really liking the overall narrative shift, the way this kind of series is working before i think in the first season we talked about how you could have three quarters of a great episode and if one quarter of it had to do with tommy on the road with the baby and all that stuff then it was it was detracting from the episode yes i think by focusing on so so laser like on just little aspects of you know one or two particular characters points of view and what they experience and how they may overlap with other characters i think we're really getting deeper uh into each of these characters in the moment and i think that's having a much bigger emotional impact yeah i think that the only trade-off the only real potential trade-off i think everything about the pov decision has been great uh other than the fact that we're five episodes in of in the season two we're halfway through at this point there's only five more episodes to tell stories in in miracle with and i hope that everyone gets their due i have faith that everyone's going to get their due but that is the one thing it's like we're five episodes deep into season two already 
uh, it just it flew. It's flying. It's flying. And maybe that's a testament to the fact that it's been great. I don't know. Yeah, and it's tough because this is a series whose ratings are down by over half from the first season, which it wasn't that well rated to begin with. Uh, and last week set uh, basically an all-time low for the series. And that was after the, the week before had been even higher than the season two premiere. So it's sort of kind of all over the place with the ratings, and the ratings are not good. Under a million people are watching each episode week to week which is for a television show not a lot of people obviously so that is not great for the show it's questionable whether their intent was always to finish up with miracle as you were saying we only have five more episodes to tell stories in miracle maybe they didn't intend to give us everything in one season maybe they wanted to stay in miracle and continue to tell stories there and maybe they're not going to get a chance and so it gets into this position where you hope that they're satisfied with ending the series after season two, if that's what happens or that they were confident they were getting a third season. Uh, if we're going to leave some open ends here in miracle, because I mean, if the girls just show back up and that's that, like I, it's going to be kind of frustrating. Uh, and that's really the only kind of ending we're going to get that has any sort of expectation in the last five episodes. The rest of these endings, I don't think they've set really anything up. I mean, we don't have any real suspects, we don't know any, any real clues. We haven't really found anything more than when the girls first departed. So that's really rough. Uh, I think that the one thing that's in the favor of the show landing on, on both feet is I think that Lindelof was pretty clear about we want to exhaust everything in the book. We want to exhaust everything in the Leftovers book in season one, and we want to leave absolutely nothing of it for season two. And so that philosophy to me speaks to an approach toward a season of we're telling a complete story every season. I don't know. It was only one season, so it's impossible to call it a trend. Um, but it's hopeful if that's the, if that's the sort of roadmap that they're following that season two could wrap up in, in a satisfying way. So I certainly hope so, but let's start digging in to no room at the inn, which begins with like, I don't know, like a really depressing groundhog day type of montage, right? Yeah. Where you, where you've got Matt repeating the same things, the same routines day after day set to the tune of the Bellamy brothers. Let your love flow as he's, you know, he's prepping Mary for the day and he's taking her to church and he's bathing her and feeding her the same meal. He's eating the same damn burrito and he is hoping that it's going to repeat the experience of her waking up as she did uh, several weeks earlier and it's not working and he's very frustrated. He's filming them. You know, he films themselves at night. It's a very great introduction to this episode, but damn, it's like, it's a real tone setter of, okay, this will not be a happy episode of the Lefters. Not that there are many of those, but this will certainly not be one of them. Yeah. It's a downer at first because it's like, wow, this guy does a lot for his, uh, his invalid wife, like right. just everything that he goes through for her. But then to see it happening over and over and over again with the same routine. And then I guess the, the realization that it, it is in some ways he's really trying to create the same circumstance. That realization comes from the fact that we talked about on this podcast, a lot of people in Jarden are apparently people that are slaves to the same routine for that reason. Yeah. Uh, the man who killed the goat, uh, the people that let the man just kill the goat. That's the kind of biggest example of it. We probably saw another example of somebody watering their lawn in a wedding dress or stuff like that. That seems Indeed. out of place and weird, but probably is happening because people want to repeat the same routines in hope of creating the same result. I mean, in some ways, 
it's similar to the ritual of Catholic Mass uh, or lots of these other kind of spiritual things that happen where you repeat the same pattern. In the case of the Catholic Mass, they're, they're mostly repeating the Last Supper uh, and the consecration and the story of uh, taking the bread and the wine and all of that. And the idea is that by recre- recreating the circumstance, you are uh, touching into that spirituality in some way. And I think that that's part of the reason why Matt is doing it. It's also sad to think about, especially with the video. Part of it is because he doesn't necessarily believe that it happened, and he really wants to prove it to himself. And the other part is because he's a huge fan of paranormal activity, and he's (laughs) trying to create a viral video that will overtake the internet. Yes, he wants to create a found footage horror film when the the blanket just slides off of him in the middle of the night. That's we we know that about Matt from season one. Uh, Yeah, that was referenced early on that he's a big horror film buff. Yes, and it was in a lot of the deleted scenes on the uh, the Blu-ray DVD combo. I don't know, did you get that with the extra disc? Yeah, I did get that, and I really like the like the five minute you know ranting and raving he does about how uh, Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows is total bullshit from veering away from the found footage genre. Yeah, you can see why that wasn't in the show, but it is a good uh, scene for Christopher Eccleston. So it's uh, it, no, we're of course kidding. Uh, the only thing in the special features in season one is it is, it is revealed. Is that- his full commentary of paranormal activity <laughs> too. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say it's revealed that he is a Nazi. But other than right. that, oh, everything no. is the same. No, we, we don't know much about Matt, but yeah, I, I mean, it's sad. It's just so crushingly sad and the music isn't that sad it i think is, that's why we're joking right now because this episode is yeah, so brutal gallows humor right yeah, right yeah. this is a you know this is like you said a sad groundhog day it did remind me of desmond uh in in lost a little bit with the same daily routine set right. to the music and the way that was all playing out seeing what was being eaten and you know just all of everything that was going into that it, it was very familiar um, to have the episode begin that way. Uh, but yeah, this is a, definitely a Jarden callback. This is a, this is Matt just trying to recreate the same circle. It's just so sad. Like, I don't know how else to put it. It's sad enough when this is just his daily routine, but to think that he's doing it in hopes of it not being his daily routine is the saddest thing ever. Well, what's also potential is, you know, it's potentially frightening, too. You know, we we do have to talk through this possibility because one of the things that The Leftovers loves to play with, we say it time and time again every time we do one of these podcasts, is it's like, is it real or is it in your head? You know, is this is there something magical happening or are you losing your mind? That's, a, that's a, a you know, a, a two-sided question that's asked of just about any main character on this show. And we're getting it here with Matt where we have to wonder, did Mary wake up? You know, I had said in last week's podcast, I believe, that I really felt like we were going to see that Mary scene. Obviously, we didn't see it. I'm, I approve of the choice. I think that it was a better choice to not show it. I like that the way that they let it unfold this week better than what I was hoping to see. Um, but we have this question with Matt of, did Mary actually wake up that night? Or did he hallucinate it? Did he imagine it? And we have a scene in this episode that we'll talk about in a little while where he is either seeing her speak to him while he's been hit over the head with a wrench or he's hallucinating again. Um, and in that context, in the context of Matt didn't actually have a three-hour chat with Mary, that that was all some sort of lucid dream or a vision or him just being little cuckoo pants, then this scene of him raging at her and like aggressively contorting her body toward him and saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. This isn't fair. Wake up. It's very dark. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, the fact that he might be repeating the routine not to make it happen again, but because he personally wasn't sure if it ever happened is the saddest thing of all. Like, 
and the scariest thing of all, because then you've got a character who is truly unhinged. I mean, his feature episode in the first season, Two Boats and a Helicopter, he was seeing these pigeons giving him signs about right. what to bet, when to bet, where to bet, uh, how to bet, that sort of thing. And he interpreted those as as methods or, or ways to... Th- that he was being spoken to and he could just be a crazy person. Like there's a possibility that Matt has a screw loose. I mean, he was doing some very dark things as we talked about in the first season and he's been through a lot. And so it's not unfathomable to think that he might've imagined this. And like I said, to me, the central kind of question and where, where I looked at Matt, the rest of the episode really is that does he know that he has this potential to see things and does he trust it himself? I mean, when he talks to John and we'll get into it on the street and that sort of Western showdown, he seems very confident in his position, but I, I don't know throughout the rest of the episode. I feel like he is con- He has faith, but that doesn't mean his faith uh, isn't subject to some darkness. And I think we see that come out from Matt a lot of the time too. And just to think that he might be trying to prove it to himself as well as other people, let alone trying to replicate it, uh, to say to himself that I'm not crazy. I did, I did experience this. That's the sort of, that puts him like Kevin Garvey. Uh, and that, you know, that puts him in line with a lot of these other characters, like you're saying, where every week we're asking ourselves, is it in their head or not? It's just tough to think that Matt is also asking himself that same question because otherwise he seems like such a man of faith. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a way to watch this episode where you were reading Matt as, kind of a maniac yeah. and you're and you're reading him as somebody who who did you know have sex with his invalid wife and all of these all of these things um and it's dark it is it is a really dark read if you choose to read it in the way that isn't matt as is a man of faith who is desperately trying to prove to other people that what he feels to be true is absolutely true which is a very valid way of reading it but there is there is the other way too and it's it's scary it, it, it is a really scary context and i think that that's something that's really terrific about Christopher Eccleston as this character is, you know, he has his features are so exaggerated. Like he has these big ears and his nose and he's got this big, big smile and it makes him look, I don't know when he's smiling, he's like beaming and it could be just this, you know, beaming radiance of positivity, or it could be the smile of someone who is about to do something awful. Yes. And, and Christopher Eccleston, he's, it's so, it's so great. He just, he rides this line of, of pure optimism and pure horror. And you really don't know quite how to feel around him. Um, and I think that that's something really amazing that the actor brings to the role. And I think that that's very John Lockish as well. Yeah, and that is true. That is definitely true. And it's tough to say where that line is drawn. And like I said, I think the scariest thing for me is that the way the actor plays it as you're talking about, uh, I I feel like that the character – uh, could be of two minds. Like he could be hiding this, this see, this seething self doubt. And I think that that's why the story of Job is, is kind of underpinned throughout this episode. Um, that's why he maybe chooses to, that's part of why he chooses to go up into the stocks because he feels like he needs to punish some aspects of his personality for things that have happened. I, I think there's a great interview with Christopher Eccleston. Uh, they're killing it over at Vulture with the leftovers interviews. And this is Absolutely, another one. Yeah. Um, and definitely worth checking out because I think he has some very clear ideas on the character, obviously, since he's a fantastic actor. And I think that um, that might help. But I think that the way the show presents it is the doors open for multiple interpretations, as you're saying. 
Yeah, I think so. All right. So Matt is going to take Mary out of town. He's going to get her an MRI to see if there's been any change in her activity. We have a quick scene that's kind of foreshadowing the nightmare land that exists right at the door of Miracle. Uh, we, we see as Matt and Mary are trying to get across the bridge, and he has this funny line where he's like, I think that they could invest in a bigger bridge. And then he parrots for her and says, well, Matt, that would really ruin the charm of the place. Yes. Which I, which I thought was really cute. Uh, but we see, you know, we see these people who are trying to run over over and it doesn't it doesn't go all really throughout this entire episode i i became rather jaded with the whole miracle of it all like the just the the way that this place is designed and staffed seems really thumbs down that seems each don't think so to me personally speaking yeah i mean why not what 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 rubs you the wrongest about it well, I feel like they just feel very understaffed and they feel like, you know, there should be a higher security parameters. They shouldn't be able to have these people running across the bridge. Uh, and everything that goes down at the visitor center feels like this all, this all seems avoidable. If Miracle is really as big a deal as it seems to be, you think that it would be invested in a little bit more. You feel like maybe, maybe the government would do a little bit more for this place. Yeah, there is an interesting kind of discussion and I don't even know where I saw it online and it, it was relating to this episode, but in general, like, why did the government have an interest in making Miracle a national park to begin with? Like, where, what level of investment do they have? I mean, cut that against the backdrop of MIT buying Nora Durst's house for $3 million because it was a matter of geography and their theory. And the scientific study that they wanted to do in just one house that was worth multiple millions of dollars. Clearly, Miracle is a place where if the miracle is true, there's a lot of value to it to a lot of different people, whether it's the people that we see in the crazy McPoyle-esque camp outside the town uh, or, <laughs> yes. you know, whatever, there's Burning Man. I've seen a lot of people calling it. Like, whatever's happening there, those people have an interest. But the government has some kind of weird interest too, but not enough, as you're saying, to make it truly impenetrable or to make it any kind of thing that, I mean, Nora Durst is smuggling people in in a trunk. like In a trunk! Yeah, like this is not a fortress. And that bridge is so weird. Like, yeah, you'd think they would make a bigger bridge, but it, does it only go one way at a time? Is that what happens? It seems like it. You would also think, speaking of that bridge, you know, when, and again, we're hopping around a little bit, but when Matt and Mary are trying to get back in after they've gotten their wristbands taken away, and it really, it's an improbable victory for Matt that he is able to convince this trooper to let him through. There should just be better protocol in place for that, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, call radio ahead, say, hey, here's what's happening. We got a guy coming down the line. Don't harass him. We need to get him in place. And shouldn't there be a database where he can look his name up and see that, yes, he is a guy in the town who was given a wristband like shouldn't his like photo some, be on file yes, some photo id absolutely like, absolutely it, i think you and i could rehab miracle i think you and i could we could fix some shit up. yeah we could we could we could whip we could miracle we could whip it into shape we could miracle whip yeah we could we could get some upstate miracle action going on definitely but miracle we get whip. we get matt and mary we see them they go to austin they go to the hospital everything seems to be going fine everything's good and whoop she's pregnant what uh-oh that's no uh, good how did this happen? Oh, and I yada yada through the best part. He drops his phone in his own pee. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done that? 
yada yada through the best part? No, yeah, dropped your did. phone in your own pee. No, but my best friend did. Uh, my best friend not named Antonio Mazzaro. He was over at my apartment once, and he was uh, texting. He was in a fight with his girlfriend, and he was texting her, and he dropped his phone into the pee. Maybe it was like a Freudian slip, a phonian slip. Yes. Uh, but I think it was an accident, and I think it just made him even angrier. Twice. But I did witness that, and it was an incredible moment of just the universe really playing tricks with somebody. It was great. That's why you're not why you're not supposed to uh, text while you're pissed off because you might end up pissed on. Like <laughs> yeah. it's bad. I once, Josh, um, I once flushed my own pager down the toilet. Uh, I love that you uh, had a pager to flush down the toilet. Multiple pagers, Josh. <laughs> let's be real. Not at the same time, but in succession. Right. But yeah, I was just uh, you know zipping up, and it was it was kind of. Uh, perched in my pocket there and I brushed it on the way by and it was right after I'd flushed the toilet and uh, sure enough it went right in there and went right down the hole it's gone gone what ha- so what happened to it was it ever recovered no I mean it goes it was in a it was in a municipal like a public toilet like it wasn't it's not something I could have you know gone and undid a septic tank and cleaned it out I wouldn't have done that anyway but uh, yeah it's gone I don't know People. What did you tell? Was it for work? Was it a pager for work or a personal? It was pager? a personal pager. Okay, so you didn't have anyone to report to. No. Ah, yeah, no. flushed my pager down the toilet. Yeah. I need a new one. Yeah, it was it was bad, bad deal though. That did happen, and uh, it's just one of those feelings where what do you, what can you do? Like it's just you watch it happen in front of you, and it's too late, and it slips away. This is the thing. What is the deal with cell phones in Miracle? Because Kevin's, I mean, this wasn't in Miracle, but Kevin's phone got bricked right away too. Yeah, yeah, he dropped his phone. Phones in miracle. It's not. It's not great. Unmiraculous for these phones. Well, it. it I mean, it. It doesn't beg the question because that would be the wrong use. It begs the question, but it does make you wonder uh, what what's going on there. Like, is there some greater thing? Probably we're not. We're having trouble communicating with each other. We're not communicating well with each other. Yes, we have a problem. Uh, we have we have some kind of communication problem happening in Texas. And so uh, what we have here is failure to communicate. And that can happen. And I don't know if there's something more to it or not. But I, I think that people are noticing that. I think that we should track that. I, I We don't we don't know. Evie left her cell phone in the car when she disappeared, so that is not an open line for someone. Uh, it's it's interesting this this cell phones that are happening. All right. This. All right, we've got we've got the cell phones. We've got a flag. Are we planting it? Do you no, want to plant it no, with me? no, I don't want to plant it. it. I don't want to plant it. But I think you don't want to plant the flag. Come on, no, I, I just I think we should plant the flag. All right, okay, I'm with you. It. We should All plant right. it right in the toilet as we're flushing. Yes, and it's not. It's clogged. It's yep, clogged. clogged. The toilet. Stop. We're, we're stopping anything further from happening. But yeah, I don't know. the 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 thing is like. You think about magnetic poles. We talked about the Axis Mundi. Sometimes when you go into an area, a cell phone will go out of service for no reason that you can explain. And there may be yeah. some kind of magnetic issue or geographical issue or coverage issue. That hasn't been the case in Miracle thus far. But we do see two cell phones just completely gone. And whether this – it's it's a little bit shoddy writing, I think, to uh, to take a cell phone out of commission. They had to find some way to do it. So this is what it happens. But if it serves a larger purpose, I think that there's something more interesting going on there. Well, I think it also just speaks to the fact that nothing ever goes Matt's way. You know, things are constantly, constantly turning against Matt Jameson, and yet he is still always pushing forward as with, with his head as high as humanly possible, which is not super high throughout this episode, but he's trying, he's trying. But let's get to, let's get to what's really important here. We find out that Mary is pregnant 
this is very, very interesting. She is, you know, she's not only she's a little bit older, she's 40 years old, and she has basically been, uh, what did they, they describe her as like 90% comatose or something like that at yes. one point? Yeah. Um, so it's tough. How does this happen? Well, and, but it's you a, know, he, go ahead. It's a double miracle because she was unable to have children. They had tried for 10 years before that and nothing. Yeah, so they. This is all. It's an interesting confluence of stuff. And now, what is this? Is this a gin and son? Is that what's going on here? Oh, I don't know. Or is it? A, or is it a kind of not a not a virgin birth, but some kind of metaphysical anomaly that leads to a pregnancy? I mean, that's really the the sort of thing that you have to consider. And of course, her name is Mary. Of course, the episode title is No Room at the Inn. Um, the the Immaculate Conception. I, I mean, I'm raised Catholic. A, a lot of people misinterpret that. A lot of people think the Immaculate Conception is referring to Mary conceiving Jesus, and that is not the case. The Immaculate Conception was, in fact, Mary's conception because she was conceived without original sin, uh, which is which is immaculate. That was a blessing that was unlike any other human that had been born. Uh, and for her to not have original sin, that was really what made her the appropriate kind of person to give birth to Jesus in the first place. So the virgin birth and the Immaculate Conception are two different things. But this is certainly a, a conception by some sort of metaphysical anomaly or spiritual anomaly. Um, not only the comatose part, as you were saying, but also the fact that they were unable to have kids. Then their first night in town, she's awake and she can get pregnant. I mean, this right. is a crazy thing. And it's one of those things where I, even at arm's length, it's really hard to believe every person that encounters her after that, that hears that she's pregnant, gives Matt a look like, really? Yeah. Like, really, uh, dude? Yeah, like, you are a pervert and a bad person. Yeah. Those, those are the looks that he's yes. getting from a yeah. ton of people. And again, like I said, the duality of the character and looking at what's going on with him and his story through the two different lenses. One, a miraculous thing is happening, and he is doing everything in his power to keep the miracle alive. Or... Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the right noise. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, hmm. dot, dot. Hmm. Or you know? fill in the blank. Or he had a hallucination and thought something bad and, and thought thought that she woke up. I mean, we do see her speak in this episode. It yes. probably is a hallucination. It's sort of presented in a way that it would be believably a hallucination. Uh, but then that same speech that she gives is somewhat parroted by another character in the episode. So maybe it is true. Maybe she did say that. And right. I don't know. Maybe she's talking the whole time, and it's just a matter of somebody being able to actually hear her. And I want to talk about that when that comes up. But yeah, I mean, you have to look at Matt, and we've spent most of this podcast talking about it. You have to look at him through both lenses, and you can't just look at him. You can look at him however you want, but you have to understand and respect that both interpretations are there uh, and that they're going to lead you through a weird thing. And I think that that's really ultimately one of the kind of under underpinning kind of central points about this series is that the way people choose to interpret the events that the world presents them uh, does impact their worldview. And it, it, it certainly defines what they do for many. The departure was a miraculous spiritual event for others. It was the very proof that there is no such thing as spirituality or anything to put your stock in. Uh, many people chose to look at it like, Oh, it will happen again. And how do we have to react some said, oh, we're nihilistic and we should just treat every day as though it's our last. And the lens that you choose to see events through uh, will define in some ways the worldview that you have and how you experience the world. So I think that that's kind of what we're seeing throughout Miracle and Jordan, the way people look from outside Miracle and Jordan at Miracle. 
uh, and the way characters in general see the things that are happening to them, whether it's Kevin with Patty or uh, whether it's other events. And so I think that's the kind of larger thing that the show is about. How do people respond and react to these things and the worldviews that we seek and choose and why they are how they are? Matt in this episode said he was raised in the church, so that's why he's spiritual. Not a great answer, uh, ultimately. I mean, for me, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, uh, I have faith. Uh, I've experienced all these things. They mean a lot to me, not just someone told me to do it. And so right. there's a lot of that going on as well. And I think that really that's what the show is about. And so I think when we've got uh, characters like Matt, uh, that is really what we're looking at is that he's got his own reaction to what happened and it is definitely influenced by everything he's experienced and he will continue to interpret things that are presented to him through that lens and maybe not take a step back and see it the way someone else would. And so of course he thinks it was a miracle. Of course he thinks his wife uh, came awake when they got there. But like I said, the really kind of sad thing about that to me is that there is this great thing that Christopher Eccleston does with Matt where you can tell there's a part of him that isn't sure. Uh, and that is being tested by all this. And he sees it as a test. And that definitely ties into his stuff from season one. And that's really what's fantastic about this. And that kind of plays out here. Um, when we get in that accident, as we're advancing the episode here, um, we have the scene where Matt reach the, reaches the guy on the road. Um, he, he decides he's going to stop and help the guy. And he immediately classic gets, Matt. Classic, classic Matt, Matt immediately gets waylaid. Right. And it's like, yep. he could have chose to see that guy as a threat as somebody that he needed to approach with trepidation. But Matt approaches him with open arms and gets basically beat up for it and taken advantage of. And that's rough. Uh, I mean, that is constant. Talk about negative reinforcement of your worldview. Like right away, Matt sees, uh, the results of him trusting somebody on the street. Not good. Christopher Eccleston talks about this in, in his Vulture interview about like why Matt, after getting knocked out in Mapleton when he, you know, when he got, when he got held up, uh, why, why go through this again? Why keep doing, like, why keep putting himself in jeopardy? And like, why is he still trusting is the question that's asked. And he says, a man of the cloth is supposed to stop and help people when they are in distress. And he's not supposed to question what the consequences of that might be. So the fact that Matt helps someone out again is very gratifying. Matt, quote unquote, abides to quote the big Lebowski. If you're a man of the cloth, you cannot pass them by regardless of your experience. Everything that's thrown in Matt's way is God's will. Well, God really likes to throw a lot of jerks in Matt's path, I guess, because uh, this has happened a little bit to Matt. Yeah, and you would think that like that that quote, even from the actor uh, talking about why he approaches it the way he does, is saying that he feels like he has to do it. Not that he wants to do it or not that he's choosing to do it, but that he has no choice, that this is what he's supposed to do because of a decision he made long ago, because of what his profession is, etc., and that, that has put him in some bad positions in the past, and it will always put him in bad positions. Uh, and whether it will ultimately lead to something more powerful or not, uh, it's a fair question. But Matt has that choice. I think that describing it as an absence of choice is interesting because the two boats in a helicopter episode, the Matt-centric episode from season one, season one, episode three, begins with Matt telling a story that we later find out is about himself. And he tells a story about how a little boy was born. I think he was like eight years old. He had no siblings or anything, and he was the center of his parents' attention. Everything was great. Then he had a younger sister, and she took all his attention. And right. He prayed and prayed and prayed that he would get some attention back, and then he got leukemia, and he almost died. And then Matt, as he's telling the story in season one, says basically like the boy had a choice. Like the boy could have chosen to see that he was rewarded for his prayer uh, by, be, by being given leukemia, that it's what he wanted. He asked for this. 
or the boy could choose to see that as a test. Um, and it was, a, you know, to test his faith, something that was put in front of him to, uh, to make him, you know, just it, it would generally that would make a boy angry. Like, why would you do this to me? And, and he could respond with anger or he could respond with thanks and, and faith and, that he made the choice, I guess, at that time to respond with faith and, and say, thank you. Like my prayers were answered. My fault for praying for the wrong thing, but you're at least thinking of me. And I appreciate that. And I think that that is, that's again, that's the lens. It's him choosing the lens through which he interprets and sees events, uh, with his spirituality. He sees that as God saying, look, I can answer your prayers, but you better watch what you wish for. Uh, and you know, if you're strong enough to beat it, I, I think you're strong enough. You can handle this. That ties right back into the story of Job, which comes up later in this episode, of course, is that God chose Job for this bet with the devil because God thought Job had the faith to win the bet for God. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. it comes down to is that God was like, look, this guy, I know this guy, he's got a ton of faith. I can put anything and you can, you can throw anything at him and he's still going to thank me for it. And so I think that is part of it with Matt is that he's, he's capable of dealing with a lot of this stuff. And I think maybe he invites it as a result because he knows that at the end of the day, if he stays strong, it just makes his faith stronger. And I think that's kind of what he echoes throughout this, but I do think it's a choice. I mean, I really do think that that's happening. Yeah. It doesn't make his thumbs stronger. Oh my gosh. No, it doesn't. Not when they get stepped on. Oh, oh that's bad. Yeah. Bad business. It's, it's a really brutal scene and you know that it's going to turn because things that are good and positive and healthy typically don't happen on this show. Usually if somebody is on the side of the road and their car seems to be broken down, that's because they're going to gank you in some capacity. You know, they're coming, they're coming after you. Uh, and this guy, he, he conks Matt out with a wrench. He knocks him out right in front of the kid. He stomps on his hand until he could get the wristband off it's brutal it's awful and it's so sad and it's it's just the worst and he drives off uh and leaves poor matt and mary on the side of the road and this is where we have the vision the vision of mary happens here uh and we gotta wonder is this is this real is he actually seeing mary talk to him here or is it you know is it in his head who really knows i know that the the hbo synopsis describes it as a vision of Mary. Yes. Uh, The HBO synopsis, which is really great. Everyone should read these. Uh, Matt lapses into unconsciousness and has a vision of Mary. Uh, That's, you know, you you don't necessarily take this as canon, but that leaves it a little unambiguous. Well, and what she says there is, I think, what's most important. Because, so if it is in a vision, and and I think we can safe to assume that it's it's presented somewhat ambiguously, but also the way that he's hit in the head specifically and the way that all plays out. I think it's more obvious that that is a vision than not. Uh, she says, Matt, we have to hurry. You have to get us back in. He won't last out here. I'm going to lose the baby. Please, honey, get us back in. That's exactly yeah. what she says. And I yeah. think it's important. Um, I wanna, we're going to revisit that in a little bit here. But those exact words, the precise words that she says, I think are important to get rid of some ambiguity in a later scene. Okay, great. So we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but basically, Matt hears that, and he's like, all right, sweet. That means you're awake again, and I can see that, and I got to get you back to Jordan, and I don't care if I have to wheel you at least five miles. I'm going to do it. Right. Which he does, which is a testament to the man's physical stamina. 
Yeah, I mean, he is he is a good doctor after all. He truly is. Uh, but he, he does that. He brings her back, and he has a little bit of trouble trying to get back in. The park ranger is reluctant at first. We've talked about this. The security protocols here are a little, a little like, it's, like, selectively harsh uh, at times and then really inexplicably lax. Like, I'm annoyed that the park ranger isn't giving Matt, like, a, a fair shake. And then the way that Matt convinces him to move forward, I don't feel like that's enough. You know, I feel like there's there's some sweet spot in between where this process could be better. Yeah, and I it's it's all really weird because the the whole outside of the park is filled with bedraggled weirdos who look like Matt, yes. who are you know pushing somebody around in a wheelchair, visible bruises, just a lot of weirdness going on. So how is he meaningfully different than any of those people who are probably making the same pitch? Please, I have to get my wife inside. She needs to be in. I mean, you're talking about a place where people make pilgrimages that are probably all sorts of screwed up, and we've seen most of them uh, that are in that camp. Not most of them, but we've seen a large part of that camp of the people that are waiting to get in, uh, and they're screwed up people. There's a lot of weirdness going on. So how is he any different than these people in that regard when he comes to them literally bleeding with a screwed up hand with a 90% comatose woman in a wheelchair? Yeah. I mean, of all the people to come to the door, it seems like he would be less likely to be believed. But yeah, here we go. Around, Walk around. right in. And yeah, yeah he... It's interesting because there is something more pure about Matt. We see the when he's walking in at this point, he meets up the first time with that the guy Elmer, uh, who is kind of saying like, "Oh, where are you from? Where do you want to go?" and all this stuff. And the, he starts quoting Shakespeare. I don't know if you caught that. He says, uh, thousand pardons to you, my good man," and then goes yes. off. And he's quoting Titus Andronicus, I think, which is like the darkest play that Shakespeare wrote. Uh, it's really, really, really dark. And I don't know that there's any, I mean, we could probably, if, you, if somebody's probably done a, a deeper dive into the thematic kind of connections, but there's just weird people abound in this place and he's sort of meeting them at every turn. And so when he gets to the gate, yeah, he's a little more pure of heart. And so maybe I can buy that uh, the guard recognizes that there is some re- real, something real there. He's not an operator, um, but you know, he gets in and, and it doesn't go so well. Right. I mean, we we get Matt to the visitor center. Him and Mary get there, but they're not in the system, and that's because they have these, like, sanctuary passes, right? That's the reason why they're not in the... Yeah, there's a kind of religious exception. Like, that's, you know, get the religious exception people in the system. You know, what if this happens? The worst has happened. You should be in the system. Anyway, this is a... We need to audit. We need to audit Miracle. Yeah, we don't need to linger on this. It's like this is the one thing so far this season that has kind of deeply annoyed me. Uh, so that's that's why I'm harping on it. But other than that, these people would be great to uh, to be in charge of Canadian New York. <laughs> yes, that'd be awesome. We need to audit Miracle. I'm telling you, we just yeah. need to figure out who's in charge and then what are they doing wrong. But just like the and the, the people who who do come through this place, like I'm I'm just the luster of miracle is washing off because you have this guy who wants to get in for for a wedding. I can't tell if he's the groom or if he's a groom's man or if he's just if he's part of the wedding party or if he's just really itching to get into the that wedding. Guy's a jackhole, man. But he's got this turquoise tie, and I feel like you don't wear that turquoise tie unless you're the guy. And this is the guy who's getting married, and this is him really, as you say, being a major jackhole yeah. right here. 
and it's just it's not great. So this Jack Hole and this Matt Locke are fighting. It's another man of science versus faith battle. Uh, I like it. Yeah. Right. There's a whole wedding party going on there. So I don't know. Maybe there's a there's a Kate and Sawyer behind. I really don't know. But yeah, they're, you're right. This is a guy who wants to, they're, they're, they're wanting to get in for different reasons. This guy can't be patient, whatever. Like I would have probably done exactly what, what Matt does as you can see why Matt would snap. Oh, you have your paperwork. Boom. Like that's right. it, you know? And but Matt is like, Matt's selectively confrontational. I feel like, you know, he has his moments here where, where he really needs to stick to his guns and his beliefs and, you know, kind of his, his, uh, I mean, it's hard to say he's nonviolent because he may have killed a man in season one. He may have really killed know. a man in this episode. He yeah. Has- and he's, He's certainly he, he hit a body once upon a time, so I don't want to say nonviolent, but you know he does try to cling to his spiritual beliefs, and we're going to see him you know do that against his own betterment in the scene with John Murphy in a little while, and we see it here as well. But then there are times where he's not really sure that he wants to go there, like and then he hits the dude. So I don't know; it's a little all over the place with Matt. Well, here. that's but, I, but that's what I like about it. That's what I was saying earlier is that yeah. is that I don't think that his his spiritual um struggle is real. Like there is a struggle. It is not he is not a man of blind spirituality. He is constantly being tested and seeing tests as tests and understanding that he may not pass them all the time. And I like that. I mean, I like that we talked about in this podcast about the beginning of religions and the way these things all start and the myths that surround them and how some of them get criticized more because they're recent enough in history that the imperfections are more well-known. Uh, and that is the case with Islam. That is the case with LDS, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Joseph Smith was changing the prophecies all the time, and he was always admitting, like, I'm an imperfect man. I am but a man. Like, maybe I'm a conduit, uh, but I'm not understanding a lot of what I'm being told. So a lot of times something would happen. He would make a prophecy. The results would play out. It wouldn't go well, and he'd say, oh, I got a new prophecy we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> like right. that yeah. thing that I said before was God's word is not God's word. God told me something different and I, I, I screwed that up. I'm just a man. And so I think that imperfection is important. I think for a lot of people, uh, seeing spiritual figures as otherworldly or perfect makes that creates a barrier and makes them inaccessible. And I think knowing that Matt is a normal person who has a very spiritual bent and feels very uh, spiritual about the way he sees the world, it's not going to make him perfect and he is going to struggle and he is going to make the wrong choice sometimes. And he does have some darkness that he's covering up with that. And that darkness is really just lingering self-doubt that his worldview is in fact correct. And I think that he goes through a lot of punishment as a result of that and causes a lot of problems. And I think he recognizes that, that that doubt uh, breeds a lot of negativity and causes him some problems. So I think that that's ultimately what comes simmering up to the service in a lot of these instances is he's constantly keeping that at bay and in, in favor of seeing everything as though he's being chosen and that he's on the spiritual path. Um, but it, it causes him to make some really tough decisions. Like, like I said, he's in season one, he's on the war path against all these people who were taken because he wants to be clear that these weren't special spiritual people, that they were bad people. And that, that's not, not a good look because it really upsets the people who lost somebody. 
Right. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say that he's not trying to be a man of the people, but you know, I think that ultimately he doesn't like, that's not the highest priority. He doesn't care about being a popular guy. I don't think, you know, he, he, he cares more about spreading the message and being right. And speaking of messages, this is what you wanted to get into. You know, Matt gets arrested here. He gets, or at least he's put in custody. Uh, and while he's there, while he's zip tied waiting for, you know, whatever the next step is going to be, there is a guy here in this waiting room. There's a couple of things here that I know you want to dig into, but let's take the message first. Yeah. Um, the, the same exact thing that Mary said to Matt in the vision uh, is repeated here. It's, it's this whole, uh, uh, he won't last out here. I'm going to lose the baby. This guy is giving that same message to Matt. Yeah. And the same message uh, I think is key is that, she, he basically says he will die, and then the guy says, she says, if you don't get her back inside, he will die. Right. And so does the man hear Mary in some way? Um, that If that was a, a message that was only heard in Matt's crazy vision, that was because he got knocked in the head, how is this man parroting the same thing? Right. Uh, and how does he know, like, he will die if you don't get her back inside? I mean, so it, it really... Big point in the mat is seeing things that are actually there, column. I would say. Yeah, unless this guy also isn't there, right? Like, that's the other possibility is that this guy is also not there. I mean, nobody else right. interacts with the guy. So we don't know for sure that that person is, in fact, Where real. is my mind? Yeah, exactly, right? right. Like, the, there's a little bit of that that could be going on. We don't know for certain. But that sort of validates Matt's previous vision to Matt. I think the other thing that, that we have to keep in mind is that some people, and this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit. I, I've seen speculation, though, and this is the place to talk about it. Some people are speculating that the message that he needs to get back in, he won't last out here, all of that, that, that message is, in, the boy. is about the boy and not about the baby. But in Mary's message, she says, I'm going to lose the baby. Please, honey, get us back in. Right. And now those two things could be completely unrelated. He won't last out here. I'm going to lose the baby. That could be two separate thoughts. But I think that it's more likely that they're related uh, and that she's referring to the baby won't last out there and not the little boy because she specifically mentions the baby in her thought. Uh, and then this version of it, when the man says it in the waiting room, is a little more uh, vague. It's just he will die. She says if you don't get her back inside, he will die. But unless she's talking about the boy as a baby, you know, it really does have to be the baby that she is pregnant with. Yes. And I mean, that boy is a small lad, but he was no baby. No. And it, it's, it, it, I don't know. I mean, this is all, there's some weird things. I mean, he's in some kind of national park jail. I don't know. There are a couple other people in there. There's a park ranger in there. Did you catch what was on the newspaper the park ranger was meeting, Josh? This is the reading? other thing. This is the other thing Antonio wanted to bring up. Yeah, Antonio sent me a screenshot of this earlier today. He is looking at a headline, and the headline says "Biblical Rains in Sydney." Oh, you think that's Sydney, Ohio? Sydney, Ohio. I don't think so. No, I, I don't think, think that so. that's Sydney, Australia, yet again. Yeah, and we're saying that this is actually five episodes in a row with Australia shoutouts. I forget who wrote into us last week that said this, but was referencing um, the Olivia Newton-John song that was covered, the the Grease song, uh, with her being a famous Australian. Oh, so there's there's Australian drops in all five of these episodes so far. So I think you can keep saying that The Leftovers is an unofficial lost sequel until proven otherwise. Well, and in, some of them are becoming Easter eggs. This is something that you would really have, you have to press pause and freeze it for a second uh, to see this newspaper, and the guy folds it right away. 
uh, in, in a continuity error, he's seen it with it unfolded in the very next shot, but he does fold it up. Uh, and so you're not, it wasn't, it didn't stand out like the David Burton, Sydney, Australia reference, uh, or the reference kind of to the, to the background, uh, with the newscast that we saw in the earlier episode, but we're definitely meant to believe. And I think Reza Aslan indicated this in an earlier interview that something is going on in Australia. What it is, we don't know. We talked in this podcast about how it's all, all the way on the other side of the world. So you may be getting conflicting reports. We may not have the full story. Um, I think all of that is still true. But now we, we know, add to that story, we're a man resurrected. Uh, his name was David Burton. Um, we know of all those things that are going on. Uh, now there's biblical reigns. Biblical reigns, and there's going to be some biblical reigns in Miracle in a little while. Uh, first, there's going to be a biblically uncomfortable confrontation between John Murphy and Matt Jameson, where we see that Murphy is the guy that Kevin is bringing in to help Matt get out of this situation. It does not go as planned. John finds the pregnancy test results. He says it fell out of the bag. Mm-hmm. You buy that first of all? I don't. Do you buy think it. it fell out of the no, bag? Or he, he, yeah, yeah. He's, think, reading, I, he's rifling through there. I think we can say pretty safely that the guy that burned down Eddie Winslow's apartment is pretty cool with just looking through your stuff. Well, and I, Matt was already kind of on his radar anyway because right. he tried to tell that story and the re- the other reverend cut him off in front of John. Exactly. So I'm sure that he was like, "Yeah, let me look in this bag here." Yeah, so that's 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 all legit within the worldview of John Murphy, but he is not happy about this because he, you know, for obvious reasons, because no one believes that Mary woke up. Um, and so if, you know, you're a person in the world of the leftovers who does not believe that Mary woke up, now you're looking at Matt and you're saying, well, you are not a good dude. You are a dude that did something real weird and I don't like it. Uh, at best case scenario, I feel like, uh, uh, the other scenario is you're a dangerous dude. Uh, either way, that's the tone of the conversation that happens here between John and Matt, where John is saying, like, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that Mary woke up and all this stuff because you were in Miracle, but let's be honest, miracles don't happen in Miracle. That's the John Murphy, uh, the John Murphy rules. And Matt, rather than just like shut up and accept that and say, all right, fine, can I have my wristband and can I get back in and then deal with it later, he decides to make a thing of it now. Because Matt did look at John earlier and he knows that this is a guy who has anger issues and has, has questions of faith and everything like that. And he calls him out on it and says, you're angry at this place. What happened to you? And John says, well, what happened is I'm not helping you out anymore and I'm going home. Yeah. And John's a pretty, pretty important dude. It seems like, I mean, he basically is ordering the national park service around when he first gets there. He's like, take those ties off of his wrist. Come on. What are you doing? Right. Like, and he's just basically gets to do whatever he wants. He's got them bandaging his hand up as soon as he's in there. I mean, John is like a big deal in miracle, I think. And he's not, you know, he's not the, he's a fireman, but I, I really don't know. I'm, this is another scene yet again. I think this question asked of, uh, of John by Matt, uh, is, the sort of question that I can't wait for the flashback episode because I definitely do think something did happen to John. Uh, I don't know what it was. We, we know that we speculate on this podcast that he was in, you know, he was in jail during the departure. And so maybe he has a different view about miracle than the rest of the city. 
maybe he knows that something is not right about miracle. Like maybe the the way that miracle is represented to the world is that it is a miracle, but maybe he knows that that's not true. Maybe he knows someone that departed. Maybe he knows something was wrong. Maybe, although you know, it could be that, it could be that he was just screwed up before that because he was a attempted murderer before the departure ever happened. So Right. The other option is he's a prick. Yeah, he's just a jerk. But <laughs> I don't know. I think there's something feeding his there are no miracles in miracle worldview. We saw last week it was in the it was in the previously on, uh, which is one of the main reasons I think that it's important to talk about uh, where we saw the the kind of uh, back and forth with Regina King and and Kevin where where you know there's the back and forth where she says. John was in jail when it happened. Uh, when he got home and he saw people were saying a bunch of things that weren't true, he wasn't having it. And we don't know what fueled all that, why he was the guy who wasn't having it when he got back home. But he was already an attempted murderer when he left, so or, or at least allegedly. So we don't really know where that all comes together, but Matt recognizes that there's something to it, and I think there is. Uh, and we don't know what it is, but I think that that, of course, really does upset John because John knows there's something to it, too, and probably doesn't want to admit it. Uh, and I think that that gets kind of to the heart of the matter as well. Um, and I think that that's, uh, like you said, interesting that, that Matt chooses that place and time to really kind of step up uh, and plant the, you know, his, it just plant his, plant flag. his flag or draw yeah. the line in the sand and be like, look, buddy. Uh, this is the way it's going to go, but it doesn't work out well for him because this uh, is yet again a time when he chooses to take a stand, and it, it really does backfire on him for sure. Yeah, but you know what? Thankfully, it works out the way that it does because I, I am really happy that the leftovers plunged us into the madness of the encampment. Uh, the camp surrounding Miracle is a terrifying place. You know, we, we talk about it as Burning Man. We talk about this and talk about it like that. I don't feel like at least if it exists, it didn't seem like we got any proof of any like happy fun times that happen here in the, in the camp outside of miracle. It just seems like all of the scary parts that you would feel would happen at a burning man type of place. Unless those tacos are awesome, which is possible. <laughs> yeah. I doubt it though. Uh, I don't like think the best tacos in Texas yeah, I don't right think outside of miracle. are locally sourced. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, this is a scary, scary place and everywhere he's going, it's just bad stuff. Like he needs to get, uh, he needs to get a thousand bucks to this guy, Elmer, the Swede, who reminds me, even though he's Swedish and this guy was German, he reminded me of the German guy from Super Troopers who's driving way too fast. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's just like I all want sorts fun. Yeah, I found fun. There's just so many crazy characters in this place, like like Sandy and her son Reggie. I assume it's her son Reggie. Big Red. Who, yeah, Big Red. Big who, Red. Like, Grace under fire. I guess we call him Brian. Yeah. <laughs> what the heck happened with that? Yeah, yeah I, I'm Reggie, but call me Brian. All my friends do. Uh, you know, you got to call him Brian and hit him really hard. Yes, at the command of Grace under fire to do this thing. Uh, that whole scene was insane. What the hell was that about? Yeah, it just. We had, a, we had a question. Uh, some, Sarah Dweedar asked, "Are we supposed yeah. to uh, just? Are we supposed to just assume that uh, that the position? Because I'm not going to. No, are we trying to figure out what that was, or just let it be? Is that is this one of the let the mystery be type moments? And definitely, I think it's a let the mystery be type moment. We don't know. It's just a bunch of weird people out there. Like I yeah. said, a bunch of McPoyles. It's just a bunch of like the detritus great. of society have washed ashore here. And yeah, Roy Detrice of society." <laughs> the Roy Detrice of society have washed ashore here, and that's what we're faced with. And in some ways, 
I thought it would be like the, the people that were coming to Miracle would be religious pilgrims. And they would be people who had a lot of faith and spirituality. When we see the first kind of busload of pilgrims come to Miracle, that's mostly what we get. Looky-loos, tourists, people that want to maybe assign some spiritual value to it. The, in the town center where uh, young Michael Murphy is uh, kind of selling the holy water as a souvenir, um, they're trying to funnel them right into the church. I mean, that's what their goal is. Those people don't look like the people that are outside the camp. The people that are or that are that are in the camp, the the tourists don't look like the people that are in the camp. The people that no. are in the camp look like the teenagers from the first season, having grown up by about by an average of ten to fifteen years. Uh-huh. And so they're all just negative people. They're laughing. They got like, at, zapped back to the time of the Dharma Initiative, and they came out uh, on the other side, infected by the smoke monster. Oh boy, yeah, we're we're really down the rabbit hole with that one. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's but, just, but, <laughs> you know what I mean. If you watch laws, we're we're through the looking glass. I think <laughs> right. we're. Uh, yeah, we're just in a dark place with these people. They're in a dark place and they're, I mean, they're laughing and, and watching as a spectator sport, the guy in the stocks and throwing stuff at him. And they're listening to dubstep in an RV, just super loud EDM and just kind of angry, uh, and vaguely unrelated to anything. Uh, they're asking you to beat them with oars really hard and say the name Brian while you do it. Nobody there seems to have a normal story. Is there a normal person out there? I don't know. We haven't met him, but I really do miss Reza Aslan because I feel like he would be great to explain the ass whooping that young Reggie, a.k.a. Brian, takes here. I feel like he would tell us all about the symbolism behind that choice. Well, the great thing about that is that – so the the reason that Matt goes to that van is he sees a cross, right? He sees yes. a cross over it. It's a beacon on the horizon. But yeah, so he feels like he's going to get an assist, and he does, but it's not a pure assist. She had, like she had yeah. been waiting. She was yeah. ready. She was like, oh, uh, I've been waiting for you. Come on outside. And the, guy, right. the whole time, uh, well, Brian, Reggie, whatever you want to call him, is like, he won't say it. He's not going to say I it. I want to call him Brian. I want to call him Brian, and I want to call him Brian while I hit him with an oar and receive $500 for my trouble. Why does it have to be an oar? I mean, the whole thing is just so weird. And she it's was so funny. She it's was so ready funny. for that. She, it, it, why does he have to be a man of God to do it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, Oh, let me give you this shibboleth first. Like she gives him a spiritual test and says, say the magic words. Tell me what you know about the Bible. What's your favorite book? Uh, what's, what's Job's wife name? Uh, you know, she's never named, but she, and she only speaks once. Uh, so we get all these kind of uh, facts that of course tie back into the story with Matt. We can talk about the story of Job. We already have a little bit, but, um, She's giving him this test to find out if he's truly spiritual. And you think, okay, now she's just going to give him the money. No. Once she knows he's truly spiritual, then she wants him to beat Brian over the back. <laughs> then and yeah. only then. So, yeah, this is just – it reminds me of the story where, you know, it's it's almost like she had this in play before that. And it's just kind of like, okay, she's – like someone has paid her to, to hire a priest to do this as a stunt or something. It's like, oh, right. finally, what I always asked for, yeah, I'll give you $500. i am going to make 5000 on this transaction because I, I made a bet with somebody that I could get a priest to beat my son with an oar. Like, All right, sure, yeah. How, I mean <laughs> – it. How else is it going to play out? Like, yeah, I'll give you 500 because I'm going to win a lot more in this weird bet I made with somebody. I don't see any other. Why does it have to be an or? Why does he have to be spiritual? It doesn't make any sense. I don't think that we need to dig into we don't it need too to. deep. No. I, I think, yeah, I think, I think that the whole point of it is just, you know, this is just the madness that exists at the gates of this place that's supposed to be the most beautiful, profound place on earth where no one departed and all of this good stuff. Uh, like I said, Throughout this podcast, the luster 
it's gone. It's, it's gone. on its way. The shine is off miracle. You know, miracle. Like, and it's in the middle of Texas and it's hot. And, you know, Texas is great. There's parts of Texas that I love, but like, this is, this Skeptical. is the place that you, this is the place that you drop three mil on Nora Durst. Come on. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's just yeah. the whole thing. It's just so it's bad. It's no good. Up. And then she's got all those pictures hanging from the RV. And yeah. I, I like to think that when it was all said and done, we didn't see this, but she took a picture of Matt holding the broken oar. Then she hung it up on the side of the RV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. what she does. Well, I would love it if when we, whenever we do return to Matt, uh, I would love to see him as like the leader of these people. Yes. And I would, and I would love to see him have Kevin hit Reggie in the butt and call him Brian at some point or something like well, that. Or maybe, maybe bring John Murphy out here and have him do that. I don't know if we'll see it again, but it is, I mean, the fact that it was, uh, that it was Brett Butler, the fact that it was a recognizable actress and right. it, it could easily not be a one-off role. We could see this again. And I think you touched on something that I definitely wanted to talk about in my notes, which is that we could see Matt being a leader of these people. Like this yeah. could be his new flock. This could absolutely happen. He was all about the flock building in season one. He was trying to start this underground magazine that talked about all the people that shouldn't have been departed if they were holy and all of these things. He was always trying to rally people to his church. He was always trying to get the guilty remnant over and win them over one person at a time. He was always witnessing and talking about his faith and he wants to do that. And they have denied him that in Miracle. He's not been allowed to tell literally the most miraculous thing that happened to him in Miracle. He, he's been stymied at his church from doing that. He's been assigned to do like odd jobs and stuff and hasn't been able to tell this great story. Right. Here is a flock and an audience of people that might and actually when you say be super flock, you don't mean When you say flock, you don't mean fake lock. No, I don't mean fake lock. Oh my gosh. No. Yeah. No. I mean, flock of seagulls, the eighties uh, band. No. Yeah. Not fake lock. Not, and I mean like a regular flock of like, this is his, she's his shepherd and these are his sheep. And I think these are people. And that when you say shepherd, be, I'm sorry. I don't mean Christian going, shepherd. Going. No, I don't mean Christian shepherd or Jack shepherd. Uh, I, you know, it's tough. You can't get past all the uh, imagery and lost it. It will haunt you if you let it. But yeah, I really think that he could win these people over. I really yeah. do. And I think that these are people that will be super receptive to something miraculous did happen in Miracle. There's a reason they're sitting outside the gate, right? Like totally. they want to be somewhere where miracles happen. Who wouldn't? But they really want it. And so. Well, and they would be really receptive to the guy who's coming in and saying, like, my wife woke up and all of this stuff. Right. And now she's pregnant. Right. And all of these miracles are possible. And this is a, a sacred place and blah, blah, blah. So all totally, totally within the realm of possibility. You can see all of these stories springing from Matt being in charge of these people. So he's in prime position for something like that to happen. Well, maybe not so prime because. Well, he's, uh, no, maybe everyone's looking up at him being like, that's pretty good. Yeah. What are they saying that about? They're saying uh, it looks good. Just the whole, the Just whole, the, package. Whole, the whole thing that's happening there. Yeah. It's all, it's all, he looks healthy. Well, he, I mean, he is subjugating himself and he is, he is subjecting himself to humiliation and to pain, but he's doing that, uh, at least ostensibly to free someone else from the suffering. Right. And that is a truly selfless gesture, uh, in that respect. And to the people who read it that way, they may read a lot of piety and faith and, uh, strength into that. So right. it's there. And yet, absolutely. And like you get the sense of how many people have volunteered to go up in the stock. Right. You know, the way that the, the way that they rip into him earlier in the episode when he shows up there and they're like, yeah, that's what I thought. And, you know, when he's walking away. So you get the sense that not a lot of people do this. Um, so, yeah, he's probably, you know, he's 
he's getting into this position, he's probably going to be a pretty notable person here in the camp community. Um, so that's, that's the end of the episode. Obviously there's a lot of stuff that happens before that. So let's, let's run through all of that stuff real quick. Yeah, let, me, let, talk- me, let me hit one more thing before we move on from here. Uh, the Job's wife thing, he does mention that Job's wife speaks only once. Of right. course, Mary only speaks once in this right. episode. Um, that's not a, you know, it's a pretty clear parallel there. Um, and, and I guess the, yeah, she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. That's what Job's wife says. Uh, and that I think is, is really the a central question that Matt is struggling with throughout maintaining his integrity, not cursing God, taking it for the faith. He's very much a, a Job like figure for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, All right. Uh, so he, do I need another or is also, do great. I, <laughs> is that, is that real? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That was a good line. Yeah. Uh, so he, so he gets the money. He's a little bit short. Elmer still agrees. He leads him to this place. That's going to take him into miracle. Then the storm happens and, you know, we're, we're not allowed to see what Matt and Mary are up to on the other side of the tunnel, but we do see the love flow them out of the tunnel. Were they being led to their demise by Elmer or is it just like more bad luck raining down on Matt? He's just getting pissed on. I think it was just a, I mean, I I don't think that that tunnel was ever going to let him out, but I don't think that Elmer was trying to kill them. I just think that it was a, a, it was going to be a dead end always. And the water did flow through there at the wrong time. I really don't think he was trying to kill them, but maybe he was, I don't know. Was that your read that he was trying to kill him? Well, that's what I expected was going to happen. I kept thinking that as the camera was pulling out further and further back out of the tunnel that we were going to start seeing people like go into the tunnel. That was what I was thinking was about to happen. That never happened. And just the fact that he got washed out at first, uh, that was that was my first thought. But I'm just tr- untrusting of these people. Yeah, well, then the music cue comes back. So it is very much, a, oh, we're, we're repeating this same kind of trials and tribulations over and over right. again. And, and we're not getting any closer to what we need to get to. Uh, and then he goes back to the camp and he, he's again being turned away. Nobody wants to help him. It's raining really heavily. But then, Josh, my all-time ride or die, my all-time ride or die, Nora Durst shows up in yep. her raincoat. She's the best. She's great. Got, anonymous tip. Anonymous, anonymous tip. Don't question it. Freaking don't question love it. Nora Durst. Yeah, she's great. She's great. But she showed up. She was looking for Matt. She and Kevin, they're able to sneak. Uh, they're able to sneak Matt and Mary back in a miracle in the trunk. That's incredible. We've talked about the security policies here at Miracle plenty. Uh, what we can talk about is this moment in the trunk, uh, which is which is something that Christopher Eccleston has described as the most romantic or one of the most romantic uh, acting moments of his career. Yeah, it, he recites kind of a segment of a poem by William Butler Yeats, uh, the song of wandering uh, Angus, and it's just a love poem. Ultimately, I don't know that there is uh, much more to it than that, um, but I think that there's probably some subtext there, but I think that it is a purely romantic moment in the trunk here that he's he's giving this poem about uh, how he loves Mary so much, and he's always going to, you know, throughout, the, throughout eternity, uh, see her beauty uh, and follow her wherever he needs to, and I think that moment in the trunk is just pure, purely beautiful. Um, unfortunately, it's punctuated and interrupted by a wreck that's happened on the highway. Too many goats, Josh. Too many goats. Too many goats. There's a lot of goats have died on television this week. Uh, where else have goats died on television? Well, there was really only one, but there was a notable. Ah, I don't want Goat, to say. Goatable? Nah, there's there one goatable death. Was it a uh, was it a Walking Dead goat? I'm not. Uh, was yeah, it a goat yeah, zombie? Yes, it was. Yes, yeah. it was. I apologize if that was a spoiler. So there was an accident on the highway there with these goats, uh, and presumably these are the goats that are headed into town, being led to slaughter for uh, our guy's daily kind of routine. Uh, but right. the accident is with the guy who robbed uh, Matt. 
Yeah, comeuppance. Yeah, comeuppance. Uh, this is a not great comeuppance, though, because the guy is legit dead, uh, and his bracelet is taken, and then we see the kid, the boy, standing in the forest there, offering his sanctuary bracelet up to Matt. Right. And, you know, Matt eventually, you know, he brings this kid to John Murphy and says, this kid needs help. You're going to have to help him out. Uh, but the first thing he does is he, you know, he like dead stares the kid as he's taking the wristband off of who we assume is his father, uh, his dead father right in front of this kid. And he says, this one's mine. And it's like, dude, this kid is traumatized. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it goes, it's further, further, another point in creepy Matt column, I think. It's just rough. I mean, this is like, you, you come upon a horrible incident like that. And I mean, how do you react? I think is the question. And in that moment, Matt's almost feral. Like, this is my thing. This is mine. This is what I get. But of course, he responds in a very different way. And that, you know, his, I think it is a central underpinning struggle. Again, this is him in the moment responding in a kind of dark way, as you said, but then the long-term way is as he's kind of walking away from town, uh, you see John uh, and he meets up with John in kind of the old Western kind of in the middle of the street kind of thing. And, right. and he, he gives John the kid and says, take care of him. But he also digs in, as we said, and, and says, this is what happened. My wife did wake up and I'm not going to, I'm not going to hide from that. I'm not going to stop telling that. And when she has this baby, I'm going to come back into town and take care of her. And we'll, we'll you know, we're going to talk more then. So yeah, he, you and I will have a talk, yeah. which is just a great line. Yeah. He pretty much lays it out for John and I'm really looking forward to that talk. I really hope we see that. Um, but yeah, that's great. What do you make of this now? So Mary was in the town, uh, not when uh, the departure happened, of course, but she was part of the official population, the approved population of the town. Um, and now the kid has entered the town just as Matt is leaving. Yet again, more evidence of the numbers in the town. We talked about this previously with the three girls leaving as the three Garveys show up. And right. the fourth Garvey, uh, the person who leaves the town in that case is Isaac, who we know goes out of the town to a hotel after his house is burned down. So that's a four for four scenario. Uh, and now we have one person leaving in Matt and we have one person going in in the boy and we're, we're, we're our numbers are even again. Yeah, numbers are even again. This seems to be an important thing. Num the numbers are good right now. Oh, gosh. No, more number-related issues. The, num the, num <laughs> the numbers are good. But I'm curious as to what's going to happen to that little boy. Like, what's the, what's the fate of this kid? Uh, where do we see him pop up next is what I want to know. Yeah, I, and I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah. it, it, he, I don't. We see the Garveys taking in Mary. We see Kevin carrying her into the house. We know that at least for a time, Matt has said, hey, hate to be a burden, but in addition to the baby that someone dumped on you, can I... I dump my comatose wife on you as well. <laughs> by the way, she's also secretly pregnant. Yes. Yeah. By the way, we have to make sure that she's good on that as well. Oh, so man. No. this is a tough deal for Nora Durst, but she's rock solid. She's ride or die. She can take care of business and she'll do it. But I don't know who's taking care of that boy. Is John Murphy going to take care of that boy? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he, that could be lost. It. A, lost a child. Bring a child. I mean, is that yeah. what we're dealing with here? That could be, that could be it. Here's one thing I, I we got to start wrapping up, but one thing that I really want to talk about before we go, we already, we, 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 hypo, we hypothesized a little bit about what it could look like in the future with Matt and the people at the camp. I want to get your take on why do you feel like Matt felt he needed to leave 
And why do you feel like Matt felt he needed to go buck naked up to the stocks? Yeah, I think this is interesting. Christopher Eccleson in that interview that we've talked about with Vulture says that his view is because the character's decision to try to get back into Miracle and everything that happened with that led to some unfortunate things happening. So he feels he has to atone for the things that he set in place with the actions that he took. I don't, I mean, I, I understand the actor's motivation there. I feel like that is, uh, you know, it's a purely atonement kind of metaphor. I also feel like, I mean, we, at, we he was asked earlier in the episode, do you want to get him down? And Matt was like, of course I want to get him down. So I think that there's part of him that wanted to free this guy, that really, truly wanted to do that. I think some of it's what I said earlier in that he's not been allowed to witness or really perform leadership roles in the church like he wants to uh, as this sort of spiritual underling in Miracle. He's been kind of stymied from sharing the very story that is like the fiber of his being. And as such, doesn't have anybody around him besides Nora who's willing to believe it uh, and and take him uh, at his story. He doesn't have any strangers or he doesn't have his flock. He doesn't have anybody that he can tell this story to to make the power of God seem real or to make the miracle of miracles seem real. Right. And so I think that's part of it too is I, I do think that he's felt stymied. This is an affirmative thing that he can do to make a religious point. I think so there's a lot of that involved as well. Uh, and I think that, I mean, I wouldn't say that he's try, he, he's like got this ulterior motive to build a flock, but I mean, I think that there's part of it that could come into play with that as well. What, what about you? What's your read? No, I think that that's on. I think, I think that that's on. And I think it's really in character for Matt to, to put himself on this kind of path. As you say, he's a guy who responds to tests, you know, yep. pass or, pass or fail, he's going to take the test. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, he is, he is a guy who, who likes to punish himself and, or, or at least is willing to punish himself when he feels like a punishment is necessary. So I think that that's a big piece of this as well. And then maybe he's just like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to convert all these people. It's going to be great. Well, and it's it gets be- back, <laughs> it gets back to that. <laughs> Yeah, really this good. is my whole plan, and then I'm going to take yeah. their money. Uh, right. No, it goes back to that that kind of quote from uh, Job's wife, right? Uh, and and the the quote that she basically says about you know uh, retaining their integrity. Uh, and he says in that episode, like when he's talking to Brett Butler about the the Orr incident, he basically says like, well, you know, as a uh, spiritual person, it's your duty to take care of me and provide me comfort. Um, that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, when asked the when the actors asked why he would stop on the road. Um, well, you're a Christian, you're a Christian man. You're a man of God. You don't pass somebody up. We know he wanted to get the guy down. Um, we know that he sees that he can get the guy down by going up there. That's something he's going to do. Right. Yeah. He's not going to, he's not going to, his integrity is not going to be lost. I mean, he's going to stick with what he thinks he should be doing. Even if that means putting his family out and putting him in a tough spot, even if that means giving up his place in miracle, he's willing to do it. Yeah, I think so. All right. It's all fun stuff. This show's so good. Oh yeah. Fun is the right word. I think. Yeah. <laughs> super know, fun show it's like a clown show every week it's it's fun it's fun to unpack though it's just and and i it's really it's great to just kind of admire the craft of the show right now you know especially a show that i really was not high on at the start of the series i it's i have i can't think of a show that i've, I've done a bigger turnaround on uh in recent memory it's just it's very good right now but so, i mean if i'm not mistaken it was the two boats in a helicopter episode that started that turn 
And it's because the when the show starts asking questions like this and presenting these dichotomies of faith and science and the choices that we have to make about how we view events or things that happen to us. Uh, do you view uh, something as a, a blessing or a curse or how do you view the, the trouble that you found yourself in? Right. And all these things, these kind of central life questions that other shows really don't get into, that's where The Leftovers makes its meals. I mean, that's where The Leftovers is most comfortable and they've gone full on to that uh, with this season and I think we're better for it. And this is a great show. I understand why people aren't willing to take that on a Sunday night and being like let's end my weekend by asking myself those questions oh sure and it doesn't help that it's like 5 30 p.m eastern time as we're recording this and now it's suddenly pitch black outside so this is really just this show is the definition of seasonal depression for yeah me. sad i mean it's seasonal <laughs> affective know? disorder like it's happening but yeah it sucks but i mean this show is it's great because it is is one of the only shows that's touching this and it's touching in such a way that's just brilliant and yeah so fantastic work yet again i mean every episode that you watch when you're like legitimately wondering whether it was the best episode of the season good job on the leftovers yeah pretty good pretty good stuff uh and antonio fantastic stuff from you this week as always antonio's on twitter he's at ac mazzaro two z's one r i'm at round howard do we have a hashtag for this i want to use audit miracle are you okay with that uh, let's do it let's audit, we miracle. audit miracle this is i yeah, feel like got- very much like ron paul here but we've got an audit miracle i think so i think that that would be good i think that we've got some questions that need answering and really again it's like the only thing this season that i was not thrilled with just come on Get your get your shit together, Miracle. You could you could do this. Uh, anything else, Antonio? Or is that going to do? That's it? hit it all for me. How about you? Yeah, that's it. That's good. All right, guys. Again, subscribe to what we're doing here. Postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers. iTunes. We will be back next week with episode six. Can you believe it? Episode six. We are over 50% starting next week with the leftovers. Do you have any idea what's coming up next week on the leftovers? Did you? I didn't get to watch the preview. Did you get to Yeah, it looks out? like we might get a little bit more of Erica and find out what, what's going on with her, which is great because since that moment in the first episode when she uncovers the box with the bird in it, I want to know what's happening with Erica. And, Let's find out about and she, we, we had discussion about her hearing loss here in this episode with John. Um, I don't know if we're going to find out about any of that, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to it, too. All right, Antonio, I'll talk to you next week. And everybody, we will be back in one week's time talking about the leftovers. Take care. Goodbye. Love